0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Uh, joining me here is Matt Myers, MLB.com National Editor. Matt hello. Hi, Mike. Uh, we we have a good show today, I think, right? We're going to talk about uh, a guy who I've liked for a couple years who I think is going to be a breakout hitter this year. We're going to talk about a, uh, a kind of a highly regarded pitcher who maybe isn't even getting enough regard on baseball's best team. We're going to talk about how StatCast can inform park factors. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about improvements in outfield defense, and we're going to induct a play into the StatCast Hall of Fame. But first, there are two minor pieces of business I want to get to. The first one is that, uh, and I just thought this was really cool, I'd like to mention it. Last week, Tom Tango and myself met with some representatives from a Japanese baseball team, uh, which was really cool, and we had a great, fascinating conversation, and one of them mentioned that he listens to the podcast and was really interested in barrels. And I thought that was fantastic. People on the other side of the world are hearing us talking about barrels and, uh, and are interested in how to use that, which is cool. We're truly international now.
1: Yeah, and also not on the other side of the world, but I was enjoyed last night when I was watching the Yankees game, and David Cohn casually mentioned that Rick Porcello was among the lead leaders in Barrels Allowed. Um, which was uh, good to see the, uh, the, the vernacular spreading. Right. We're, we are big fans of David Cohn.
0: The second piece of business is that as this is a podcast, it's audio only. You can't see us right now. And usually that doesn't mean anything because it's a podcast. But today I need to point out that Matt Myers here is wearing an official San, Diego's, San Diego Padres Luis Perdomo jersey. And if you've been listening to this show at all ever, you know that this is always the Luis Perdomo power alley. And here he is probably. Do you think this is the only Luis Perdomo jersey in existence?
1: On the subway today on my way to work, I was definitely sure that it was the only one in New York City today. <laughs> the question of whether or not one exists in uh, San Diego or Perdomo's hometown, that's to be determined. Well, there's
0: a question for our listeners. If anybody has ever seen a Luis Perdomo shirt, please, please, please tweet at us. Let us know, because uh, I'm just dying to know if this is literally the only piece of uh, Perdomo material that exists.
1: Quick Perdomo update for those who haven't paying attention. It was excellent against the Cubs last week. Seven innings, one run allowed. And he got out of a tough jam, and that... When he was in the midst of that jam in the sixth inning or seventh inning, I said to Mike, it was a day game we were still in the office. I said, if he gets out of this jam, I'm getting a prodomo jersey. Got out of the jam, so ordered it up that minute.
0: I look forward to next week's show where you're wearing an official Jake Marisnik Astro jersey. Speaking of the Astros, the best team in baseball, right? It's kinda of hard to argue against that. They are I don't even know what the record is, but they're on pace for like 113 wins or something. As a few days ago, they
1: were on pace for 117. And then they yeah. blew a seven-one lead, and then Keiko got scratched. So and then they lost, although it seems to be just an illness, so we'll see. But the, the last forty-eight hours, they've taken a little bit of a, a little
0: bit of a head. I mean, I, I I picked the Astros to win the American League. I think you did too, right? Yeah. Okay. So we both had high hopes for the Astros, and this was before we even knew that Keuchel would look a lot more like the very good version of Keuchel than the very bad version of Keuchel we saw last year. But when I think about the Astros, why are they so good this year? I think of three things. You think of Keuchel, obviously. You think of how deep that bullpen is because the bullpen's been phenomenal, and you think how deep the lineup has been. I remember writing before the season that I thought the lineup would be the deepest in baseball, and it's kind of been that way, even though Bregman's gotten off to a slow start Beltran hasn't been great uh this is a well-built team all the way around and somehow I don't think enough attention is being paid to Lance McCullers Jr. who has been really phenomenal and he's got a 271 A and that's kind of like that's nice but it's not obscenely nice I don't think people are talking about him in kind of in the Cy Young conversation yet maybe because he's overshadowed by Keuchel on his own team and I think that's unfair, because if you look at the numbers uh, for Lance McCullers, he's been unbelievably good. And I think this will get a little bit into what the uh, the effects of his ballpark may do to him. So uh, I looked at, in the StatCast era, so we're in the third season of StatCast, over the last three seasons, we've had 425 different starting pitcher seasons where they've thrown at least 1,000 pitches. So lots of guys show up on that list three times. It's not 425 different pitchers. It's 425 different pitcher seasons. And if I rank those 425 seasons... By the lowest expected weighted on base, and now a reminder what that is. It's based on quality of contact and strikeouts. It's based on the exit velocity and launch angle of a hit. How likely it was it to be a hit or or not a hit based on the the quality of contact, regardless of what actually happened. So,
1: and it also includes walks and strikeouts.
0: And it also includes walks and strikeouts. In the uh, in the three years, I'm looking at the best starting pitching seasons. Now, the number one on that list, Clayton Kershaw, 2016, a 187 expected weighted on base. He's obscenely good. Number two on that list. Clayton Kershaw, 2015, a 217 weight expected weighted on base. I hardly need to tell you that Clayton Kershaw is the best pitcher in baseball. Number three on that list, Lance McCullers this year. With a 228 weighted on base, and if I'm looking at the rest of the top 10, Dallas Keuchel in 2015, uh, Noah Syndergaard in 2015, Max Scherzer, Chris Archer, Jose Fernandez, and then a shocking appearance from Jaime Garcia in 2015, which I guess was a year I didn't pay much yeah. attention to. But the point is, you don't get on the, this list if you're not doing not only a good job of getting strikeouts, but a great job of preventing you know dangerous contact. Lance McCullers is third on the list. Now I don't know if he'll keep that up all year, but he's off to an amazing start that's not being paid enough
1: attention I to. I mean. It, it... I might beg to differ on that. He, you know, recently Sports Illustrated did a cover story on the the rise of the curveball, which has been a big topic on on this podcast for you know more than a year. And his knuckle curve grip was on the cover of Sports <laughs> Illustrated, so it has been getting some attention. But yes, he's certainly has been overshadowed by Kykel to an extent. And for him, the story was always, well, you know, is he going to stay healthy enough to pitch a full season? And we haven't seen that. We haven't seen that yet. So that's sort of the that's the big issue: is can this guy throw? 175, 200 innings, and get through a full season, and then repeat it the next year. That's sort of the question with it because the stuff has never been in question. The question, you know, a lot of people thought maybe he'd end up in the bullpen for this reason, but he's obviously showing right now that um, almost entirely on the strength of his knuckle curve is one of the best pitchers in
0: baseball. So let's talk about that knuckle curve for a second. Uh, we looked at the uh, you know guys who've thrown at least 1,000 knuckle curves over the last three seasons. right? So I'm looking at the... Uh, uh, I'm sorry. This is 1,000 a, a pitches, and the guys who've thrown the highest percentage of knuckle curves uh, this year. right? So 68 guys have thrown at least 1,000 pitches. He's number one at the highest percentage of curveballs, 46% this year. And the guys behind him, you know, Pomerantz, Cobb, Jared Eickhoff, Quintana, and Rich Hill is hurt. He'd probably be on that list, but he's on this list by a lot. Yeah, it's,
1: it's, he's at 46%, Pomerantz at 40%, and then, then Cobb is third at 35%. So, like, McCullers... Big is gap. He's big I mean, yes, if Richie was healthy, he'd probably be there up there with him. But, like, these guys are in a, a class of their own, so to speak, in terms of how often they're using their curveball.
0: Right, and so that's just the the number of curveballs. Now let's talk about what that curveball actually does. Uh, so I looked at the StatCast error, This is the last three seasons. I wanted to look at all the guys who've thrown at least 100 curves or knuckle curves. So there are 341 pitchers. The average spin rate in Major league baseball at that time is uh, just a touch over 2,400 RPM. Lance McCuller's average spin rate, 2,800 RPM. That's 20th highest, tied with Rich Hill, of those 341. So it's an above average curveball in terms of spin rate. And he throws it more than anybody else. And then he has what a lot of these high spin curve guys don't have, which is also like a 95 mile an hour fastball. So that's a really interesting package. You don't see that a lot. You know, you don't see necessarily the comedy. Like, Rich Hill's not throwing 95, 96. No, he's no. not. <laughs> so like, a lot of these guys, like, they have this curveball, and that's how they get by. And, and it's it's with this velocity, is really impressive.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's and that's part of why people always thought he had the reliever profile. It's like, okay, this guy throws hard. He's got a curve. He's got this amazing knuckle curve. Let's just go two-pitch pitcher, just, like, air it out. And mind you, I'm sure he would be a dominant relief pitcher <laughs> should he choose to go that route. But he's he's doing it as a starting pitcher.
0: And so I was talking about how he had the third lowest expected weighted on base. Uh, now, he does not have the third lowest actual weighted on base because, you know, the results can be in bad luck. But I think for, for him, it's that home ballpark. We've talked about this with Marlon Gonzalez before. There are a lot of cheap home runs that happen in Houston. You know, if he played somewhere else, I imagine his, uh, his earned run average would be quite a bit lower. And we're going to get to park factors in a second. But um, it, it's just interesting. When you look at literally what he can control, he's doing it basically better than anybody right now.
1: Yeah, and coming to the one knock on the Astros coming into the season was like, well, if we don't get see the return of the good Keikel again, these guys are probably going to need to go out and get another elite starting pitcher if they really wanna, you know, feel like they can go to the postseason as favorites. Well obviously Keichel, assuming all's well, has returned to the good Keichel and McCullers is a legitimate number two. So now like if you're the Astros, it's also just a comforting feeling knowing that they're still I could still see them going and getting a pitcher, but now it's like they don't have to necessarily have to maybe have to give up Kyle Tucker and go get, you know, Quintana. Maybe they can give up one of their, you know, number two, three, four, five prospects and get, you know, Marco Estrada.
0: They, they might wrap up that division by like 4th of July. It, it's like, I have no faith in the Rangers. The other three teams are, you know, I mean, they are going to win that division by like 20 games this yeah. year.
1: Probably more than anybody else in baseball. So they're going to be in that weird position where it's like, is it worth going out and requiring a pitcher who may actually own a pitching? One game, like one playoff game for us. Yeah, I mean,
0: I guess if it's someone you control, and then you're also getting him for the future, you know, that goes into it too. But yeah, you're right. I, I don't expect them to be. Everybody's like, oh, Quintana. To, to, to. It's just it's been talked about too much. I don't actually see it happening. No, not
1: with not with McCullers' emergence. No.
0: Um, let's move, uh, before we move on to a, a breakout hitter, let's just tell you about the fantasy four and one podcast. Uh, if you want to win your fantasy league this year, it doesn't matter if you're playing 10 team head to head or 20 team expert dynasty format, Fred Zinke and Matthew Leach will give you the edge last week. They talked about Trey Turner and Jonathan VR, but they also gave advice to owners of injured stars like Mike Trout and Dustin Pedroia. So before you set your lineup or hit the waiver wire, sub- subscribe to the fantasy four and one podcast, uh, on iTunes today. Now speaking of fantasy, yesterday I went over to MLB Network and we did a little Facebook live show with Dan O'Dowd and Robert Flores, and I thought this was interesting. They asked for what uh, who I liked in uh, for that night in daily fantasy, and I don't play daily fantasy. And you know everything we do in Stackcast here is kind of like these long term trends. So looking at something over the course of like one day is a little you know kind of against the grain for me. And what I said to them was, I never look at a guy's record like pitcher versus hitter record ever it doesn't mean anything to me but what i do look at is a guy who's hitting really well against a pitcher who i'm not really that you know a, a big fan of and the guy i said was tommy Pham. he's only owned in eight percent of yahoo fantasy leagues and he was facing bronson arroyo last night bronson arroyo for all the good things you can say about him is not very effective tommy fam got two hits last night so i was pretty proud of that and tommy Pham is the guy we're going to talk about he is i think one of the next I'm not going to say superstar, but I think a breakout kind of guy. If he finally gets a chance in St. Louis, uh, he's been there forever. He got drafted in the 16th round back in 2006. So he's had a lot of injuries. He's got kind of a well-publicized eye issue that has affected his uh, his vision for a number of years. Uh, but this year, 2017, he's hitting 301 the 407 on base and a 516 slugging percentage. So that's uh, 146 weighted runs created plus. He's 46 percentage points above the league average. For his career, he's 21 percentage points above the league average. He's had a lot of injuries. He actually made the opening day lineup last year and injured his oblique in his very first plate appearance. Um, but now he's, he's the regular left fielder there. He's played center and right too. Started 25 of the last 29 games. And with Randall Gritchuk buried in the low minors trying to rebuild his swing, I think this is finally the chance for Tommy Pham to get some playing time. Now you're wondering, you're looking at me, why do I care about Tommy Fenn? He, in addition to, obviously, already hitting well this year, uh, you know, we talk about the air ball revolution. I don't like the fly ball revolution because line drives are really good too. Uh, and I've defined air balls as just balls above 10 degrees of launch angle. So last year, 50 hitters had at least 300 balls in play. And we looked at the weighted on base leaders on these air balls. The balls 10 degrees or higher. Number one is Gary Sanchez. Makes sense. Gary Sanchez was unbelievable last year. Number two is Alex Avila, Which is, uh, that's a whole other story we're going to get to another time. But if you're wondering, should we have seen Alex Avila coming? Maybe, right? And then third, Tommy Pham. When the point here is that when you hit the ball in the air, that's where the damage is going to come. And he got the third most damage of any of these like several hundred guys. So I think that's really cool. And if you look at this year, uh, he is 17th of 300. So that's the sixth percentile. That's better than Conforto or Harper. Back in 2015, he was tied with Carlos Correa for 32nd out of uh, 372. This seems to be a skill he's had, and this year he's cut his strikeouts while doing it. So I look at him, and I see a guy. If he gets the opportunity, which it seems like now he will, this is a guy I'm into. I I like Tommy Pham, and uh, not just because he followed me on Twitter this morning.
1: I'm a little disappointed by this, frankly, because yesterday I asked Mike. Mike was preparing to do this Facebook Live show, and he told me to pick up Tommy Pham in fantasy. I'm hoping no one in my league is... Is uh, listening because the uh, we have to put in bids for an open. You option. didn't get them yet. Well, I, I won't find out for a couple of days. Okay. We have our, we have every every Friday is our deadline, so there's there's hopefully another, no one else in my league is listening. There's
0: another thing on fan, and I am I am biased towards guys who uh, openly say they read fan graphs. And uh, so last year he talked to Derek Gould of the uh, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and he basically said, uh, he's like, my swing has to be different. I always used to work down on the ball. It wasn't helping me out in the big leagues. I was hitting too many balls on the ground. The facts are all there. It all makes sense. A lot of ground balls in the big leagues are outs. I had to make changes to stay at the major league level or I wasn't going to be here long. I respect that. That's great.
1: One of my, my, probably my favorite, uh, Baseball player, social media moment of the year, and I could say this now that Matt Adams has since uh, been You were,
0: you're, I was. That was my next story. You're going to steal my story, and I couldn't agree with you more. I'm <laughs> uh, only going to say it because Matt Adams has since been traded.
1: When the Cardinals were playing Matt Adams in left field earlier in the year, and it wasn't going that well, I think Dave Cameron at Fangraphs wrote a piece that was basically like, "Wow, the Matt Adams left field experiment really isn't going so well." So the headline was something along those it's lines. Like they should play Tommy Pham, and like the headline, and then they tweeted it out. It was like the. Uh, the Matt Adams' experience really isn't going well. And then it was, like, liked by Tommy Pham. <laughs> um, so,
0: Which is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's hilarious. Uh, so, anyway, Tommy Pham is, like, 29 years old. He's always had yeah. injury problems. I'm not saying he's going to be, you know, the next Josh Donaldson or whatever, but a guy who can crush the ball in the air and seems to be smart enough to actually know that's where his success comes and is finally getting an opportunity if he stays healthy. I think he's going to be an above-average hitter for a Cardinals team that could really use one.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, we say, you know has been around for a while. This makes me feel old. I remember when I worked at Baseball America in 2006. Um, back in the day, with high school players before the draft, we had to call them to get their stats um, or call their high school coach or try and call them. And, like, it was often like a cat and mouse. Like, it was a wild goose chase because, like, it was hard, hard to get people, get people on the phone and to get them if they had reliable, reliable stats. And I remember this one stuck out with me. Getting Tommy Fam on the phone so he could give me his high school stats.
0: So you have to rely on him like telling you accurate stats. Like, oh no, I didn't hit two ten. I totally <laughs> hit two ninety. Like,
1: well, you know, it was a more it was a more primitive time. Although I'm not sure how much better high school. I'm sure high school stats have gotten better. I'm still I'm still sure there's probably still some uh, some gray area in the in the accounting. But uh, man, 2006. So he's like 29 years old.
0: He is 29 years old. And, and, you know, again, I'm not saying he's Josh Donaldson, but you've seen guys like this, like Donaldson, Turner, these guys. They don't really turn it on until they get into their late 20s, and health is obviously a part of it. He's had some injuries. But. And also with him,
1: with the, um, the Cardinals, it's also been a, an opportunity issue
0: yeah I, I mean having gritchick out of the way for however long that is i mean that that's huge for him this is finally potentially going to be his chance uh, if he can stay healthy and, and really you should go read more about his eye condition it's it's really interesting i mean he's had to have yeah he changes his contact lenses basically in game because his eye condition changes uh so you would think that a guy like that wouldn't be able to see the ball much less hit it and here he is crushing and he's always hit the ball well so anyway i'm on record as being big into the tommy fam experience um let's move on to a couple other things Let's talk about park factors, right? And, uh, you know, we talk about this on the show a lot. Like we've talked about Detroit endlessly. We've talked about Colorado. We've you know talked about Houston. And, you know, there, there's obviously, I think, more in baseball than any other sport. It really, really matters where you play. The dimensions are different. The altitude is different. You know, the, the hitter's eye is different, all this kind of stuff. And a lot of sites have done a lot of good work into kind of coming up with park factors, and you can have park-adjusted stats and all that. And so, obviously, at some point, we're going to have really, like, more officially well-thought-out park factors through statcast uh by which i mean tom tango will do it and not me because he's far better than i am at this sort of thing but anyway i thought is like a really initial look now that we've got our expected weighted on base versus actual weighted on base you, we could just kind of look at this and see if this corresponds and it actually turns out at least from from me looking at this list these differences work out basically as expected uh, as well as i expected them to so let me give an example what we're talking about here i have in front of me a list of a combination of 2016 and 2017 for each venue Uh, the actual weighted-on-base that happened in there and the expected weighted-on-base that happened in there. Now, I'll say this is a good start, but it's imperfect. I'm not accounting for the team's skill or anything like that, so it's a start. But the point is, uh, if you look at the list here, a lot of these ballparks, the expected and the actual are basically the same. Like, Washington's a great example, right? And I think that would probably be considered a pretty fair park, not more of a hitter's park or a pitcher's park. Well, their expected weighted on base, based on quality of contact and strikeouts, is 314. Uh, Not the Nationals themselves, just anybody in that ballpark. And their actual was 314, right? Dodger Stadium, it's got a pitcher's park reputation, but it's not necessarily true. It's exactly equal. If you look at all these parks, a huge majority are within, you know, 10 points, right? Like in Chicago, expected 312, and the actual is 310. But there's a couple outliers here. Colorado is actually the outlier.
1: Well, yeah, well. Well, it's not, I guess that's surprising, Colorado. No, no, no. no. That. But
0: that's that's exactly my point. Like, it does show that uh, this uh, it passes the sniff test for me, right? Like I said all most of these parks are within ten points. Colorado has a thirty-eight point difference. Their expected was uh, three twenty-two, and the actual is three sixty. And it's not just about the altitude; it's about the giant, massive outfield uh, that's out there. So I mean, I mean, that's cool because this is another way to show it really is hard to be a pitcher in Colorado. Like, just from this very surface level look, right?
1: Yeah. No, what the one other I was going to say that jumped out to me um, actually is Atlanta basically being completely even because there's all there was all this talk in the first like two weeks. Well, of the Well,
0: so, so sort of this is over the last two seasons, and I did not sort oh, out by the two I different ballparks. Yeah, <laughs> I take it all back. although I will say the work I've done shows that the uh, the new ballpark is not the launching pad people think it is. It does seem to be more of a hitter's park than Turner Field, but it's it's not like you know Coors Field Southeast like I think people expect it to be. So when I look at these these ten parks that have had the uh, uh, the, the biggest difference. In expected versus actual.
1: Well, well, the other one that stands out in light of Scooter Garnett's Cincinnati four home run game. Cincinnati number two.
0: Yeah. So the first one is uh, Colorado outperforms by thirty eight points. Cincinnati outperforms by twenty one points, and I I think that makes sense. Like that's kind of been considered a hitters park. The third one's really interesting because it's Boston, and you know it's not necessarily like in in deep center. It's hard to take the ball out there, but obviously the left field wall turns a lot of expected outs uh, into doubles. Yeah. And maybe it's it's harder to be a pitcher there, and I think. People actually really think it is because of that wall. Um, Milwaukee is an interesting one. I don't know if I have a good explanation for that. I've never really thought of that park being as a hitter's park or a pitcher's park. Maybe I'm wrong there. Do you have any perception of what Milwaukee I is?
1: Percep- my perception of it has always been pretty homer friendly, but I don't. That could have just been like when the park debuted and they started getting good. They had a they had Braun and Fielder, and it was like they had yeah. guys hitting home runs. I don't know if that you know like it's, it's hard. Lo- it's hard to separate those two things. Yeah,
0: it's worth looking into. And the next two parks make a lot of sense. Uh, Arizona, yes, absolutely. And uh, Houston, and we, we talk about that a lot. I mean, Houston's similar to Detroit, I think, in that the the center field has been very deep, and then uh, it's pretty easy to hit home runs down the line.
1: Seeing Pittsburgh in the top ten surprises me.
0: Yeah, Pittsburgh's interesting because that, the left field is actually uh, it, it's like it's
1: large. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, like I, I sort of I, I think of it as a place that's you know pretty. I think of it as sort of the reverse of San Francisco, where San Francisco is actually really deep to to right center, deceptively deep to right center, um, and is actually a very tough hitter park for hitters. I think. Of, Pittsburgh is sort of being the same, just like with it being really deep to left center. But apparently that has been the case, at least not in terms of how this has played out. Also
0: on the top 10 list, San Diego, right? So San Diego's expected weighted on base is 298, uh, and their actual is 310. Now, again, I'm not, uh, I'm not accounting for uh, quality of hitters here. The Padres have not had a very strong offense, so maybe they just really haven't been making good contact. There's, there are smarter ways to do this. As I said, this is a very surface-level way to do this. Um, when you go in the other direction, which bar uh, kind of underperforms the most? It's actually Oakland. And I, I think that's interesting. Part of it's because Oakland's got this massive foul ground, right? Like, a lot of those pop-ups aren't foul balls. They, they turn into outs. Uh, and then I also think Mount Davis, which I think we talked about. When we talked about Chris Davis, uh, which I'm now going to just assume was named for Chris with a K. Davis. Forget Al Davis. That makes it more fun. There's some thought that maybe the wind patterns there got a little bit messed up if you hit the ball in the air. I don't know if there's truth to that. But I that's a story.
1: I, we, we promised we weren't going to talk about the A's this week. But, of course, we oh, yeah. it always goes back to the A's. We
0: promised that off the air. So didn't actually, it actually doesn't count.
1: <laughs> um but yeah, but this year they're they're destroying the baseball with their slow pitch softball team. As I've said on Twitter, I think that they've got the best slow pitch softball team in the in the majors.
0: Uh the the second team here is uh, or venue is Detroit, which makes sense. We talk about that a lot. San Francisco, obviously a pitchers park. So, uh the Angels, I think nobody thinks about that as a pitchers park, but it kind of is. Uh, and like I said, this is a very first high level surface look, but it's it's kind of cool how well this corresponds to what you would think. So, anyway, as as you all know, it's Every park is not the same. So this is a first step, and we'll do a lot more work on kind of getting real park factors out from StatCast uh, in the near future. So that's cool. Uh, two more things to talk about, and they're kind of on the same topic. We're going to talk about outfield defense. And, uh, you know, I, I think Matt kind of came up with this first one. You looked at four-star catches and five-star catches, right? The so no, are three, like the, Three and four. Three and four, excuse me. So, you know, why don't you explain this part? Basically,
1: though? you know, I've, always, I've been – since we started – since we came up with this catch probability system, I've, you know, I have a uh, – somewhat of a soccer fan my, my interest goes back and forth i've always been interested in the idea of 50-50 balls you know which is basically a loose ball that both players have equal chances at and that like you know winning those 50-50 ball the majority of them is like kind of a, a key like little ingredient to a successful team so i was interested in the concept of 50-50 catches um, the balls that are basically right on either side of the line well the way we've set up our our our, our buckets three star catches are 51 to 75 and four star catches are 26 to 50 so my thought process was like, okay, let's take everything in these two buckets and sort of define them as, quote-unquote, 50-50 So catches. this
0: is the, the middle 50%. We're yes. cutting out the really hard ones that are 0% to 25%, and we're cutting out the pretty easy ones that are 75% to 100%. Exactly. Okay.
1: So like, basically catchable balls, um, but that could go either way, essentially. Um, and what I was interested in looking at was looking at last year versus this year just to kind of see, like, okay, like, what, what's changed? You know, which teams have gotten much better or much worse in this department, because thinking maybe this would reveal some subtle explanation for teams underperforming or overperforming. And lo and behold, um, and perhaps not surprisingly, it revealed such uh, evidence. Uh,
0: so, the number one team on this list is the Minnesota Twins. They, uh, last year they got to 60% of these 50-50 balls, and this year they're catching 84% of those balls, which is by far the, the most, I think, either year on this list. Uh, that's a 24-point difference. And you know I, we talked about this before the season, that, that I expected them to be the most improved defensive baseball because hopefully a full season of Buxton, Max Kepler is underrated, and last year they were playing, you know, Snow was out there, Arcea was out there, not so great. Um, that's not surprising. And number two on this list is the Seattle Mariners, not surprising either. They put a lot of work into upgrading that outfield defense. Number three on the list actually shocks me a little bit. It's the Chicago White Sox. They improved by 14 percentage points, going from 50% to 64%, despite the fact that they traded away Adam Eaton, which is interesting to me. And, they, you know, they've got, like... I had, had of that. Which, so that's really interesting. They have, uh, at times, three separate Garcias playing out there. Uh, Avisel, Lurice, and Willie, I believe. I I, I think that's right. And then, um, you know, that's that's pretty interesting to me. And then at the bottom of the list, I think... These two, these couple of teams are really fascinating. Now, the team that's taking the biggest step back is the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, Last year, they caught 57%. This year, they're catching 31%. Now, I believe that to be true because left field has been such a black hole for them, right? I mean, they have not really had capable outfielders in left field. And then in right field, Jose Bautista, you know, certainly not the outfielder he once was. But they still have Kevin Pillar in center field. And I just don't know if the numbers like him as much this year.
1: The thing is, you know, I feel like we've kind of picked on Kevin Floyer a little bit this year because he's had a couple of catches that looked spectacular but weren't great by catch probability. probability But last year, the metric, you know, catch probability metrics were very kind to players. He was was top five. He was top five. So it's, you know, I don't know if maybe he deserves a deeper dive in terms of maybe like we're seeing a little less sprint speed or something. I don't know.
0: He's also been a much better hitter this year. He's a (laughs) totally different player right now. It's really interesting to to see. Yeah.
1: Um, so I don't know what the story is there but yeah the, the Blue Jays and granted, they've, they've worked their, after a brutal start they've worked their way back up into 500 and maybe like getting might creep back in the wild card race but when you're looking for reasons why they've underperformed the outfield defense Jumps
0: out at you. And the, the, the other team on the, the bottom of this list was also not going to be surprising. Uh, it's the Chicago Cubs. Last year, their outfield caught 63% of these uh, 50-50 balls, which wasn't quite at the top, but it was pretty close to the, the, top. the
1: top. Well, I mean, the top was the Phillies. at 65? the Rays at 66%. Okay, so 63,
0: uh, not that far off, above, yeah, above average. Yeah,
1: it's, it's just to the point, 66% was the high last year. And the twins are at eighty four this year. So it's like, I mean, I don't know if they can sustain it and like we're only looking at two years of data, but like
0: they've been really good. I
1: mean, like, you know, for all we know, we may look back I mean this is entirely premature, but let's say they sustain this, like we may be looking back at like some historically great outfield defense. You know what
0: I'd also be interested in? Obviously there's a big change in personnel. Like we know Buxton's an elite outfielder. We know Kepler is a pretty good outfielder. I would it's also they've got a new regime. Yeah. So I would be interested to know if the positioning has changed as, as well. You know, is it the way the pitchers are working? I don't really know. There's just a lot of changes that have happened there. Clearly, this is paying off. Uh, but when you go to the Cubs, this isn't super surprising, right? We knew that more Schwarber was going to mean worse defense. We uh, we knew, I'll, well, I wouldn't say we knew, but I kind of expected that going from Fowler to John Jay and Albert Amora would be a bit of a step back. Amora's been a little bit disappointing, I think, in the field, and Jay's never really been a great defender. And then Hayward's obviously, you know, outstanding, um, but, you know, he's been hurt. He's missed a little bit time so it's not a shock that the cubs have taken a big step back yeah, there
1: i remember like one of those uh it was like the day or two before the season started and the cubs and astros are playing exhibition in houston this year and we were excited because we go like, oh, this is our first chance to see catch probability in real time and john jay made this like he was playing left field and he made this catch going into the left center field gap and it was like a diving catch and it, people were like oh wow what a catch and we looked and the catch probability was like 90 percent because we saw that his sprint speed on the play was like 25 yeah speed per second which is low average for a successful catch so when i saw that i immediately became skeptical of john jay regular center field innings yeah
0: he's really never been a plus defender at least in the last couple of years and then obviously no one expected schwarber to be a plus outfielder so it, it's one of the uh the many things that are plaguing the cubs this year is that the defense just hasn't been there uh in the same way as last year and then uh, kind of the the third team on this list is taking a step back is the oakland athletics I know we promised we weren't going to talk about the A's, uh, but, you know, they've, they've made some changes in the outfield, and it was Rajay Davis is their center fielder now, so, you know, he's still very fast out there. I guess that requires a little more uh, in-depth examination as well.
1: Yeah, but while we're talking about catch probably, this probably is a good segue to our... Uh, our Hall of
0: Fame play. Yes. All right, well, you know we're big fans of Ender and Ciarte on this show, and Ender and Ciarte made a pretty fantastic catch against the Phillies yesterday. Why don't want you to take us through it?
1: Yeah, I mean, what was amazing about this play is that he, Inciarte made it look ridiculous. It was a five-star catch, 9% catch probability that he made look ridiculously easy. I don't even, it was, he made it look so easy, I'm surprised anyone had thought to even be like, hey, we should see what the catch probability was on this play. It was, was, the ball was smoked by Michael Franco. Man, Michael Franco needs a break because he's hitting like (laughs) 210 and slugging 350. It's been a rough year for him. Off the bat, it was uh, 105 miles an hour, 12-degree launch angle. This is an 82% hit probability. Um, Hit slightly into the right center field gap.
0: Uh. So he needed to go 47 feet, and he had 3.2 seconds to do it. And here's what I found really interesting about this play is it wasn't really about elite speed, right? His, his sprint speed is actually a little bit below average. 25.2 feet per second isn't great, but it was about a perfect route and great instincts. Because when he got to the ball, the ball hadn't hit the ground yet. Or I mean, he, he didn't need to dive because the ball wasn't touching the ground. He was still able to kind of like lean over and get it a couple feet off the ground because he had a, 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 a fantastic like, route to the ball. His instincts were great. It wasn't really about running speed. It was just about like knowing how to get there.
1: Yeah, and also just because the, the way catch probability is measured, it's measured based on where the ball is projected to land. So basically he was able to essentially, like, he read it perfectly, and since it was hit low, he didn't have to go to where the, he didn't necessarily have to, his route didn't have to be where the ball is going to land. He could cut it off, he, like,
0: he made it shorter.
1: 10 feet in front of where it's supposed to land. So
0: most of the time we'll, we'll see a play, and if it's not a great route, we'll say, well, he needed to go, I don't know, 50 feet, and he actually ran 70 feet you know and you can say well that's a lot of waste of time so he needed to go 47 feet and he actually ran less than that to get to the ball because as you said he intercepted the path of the ball before it went down because if he had gone to the point of landing then he might have needed to dive because the ball would have been lower but he looked at that and he basically said I can get to this ball if I take a quicker route and still get there in time for it to be higher and not have to run as much distance it's really interesting you
1: could like it's just it was like a great it was a really great example of just outfield instincts and just like, just a, a natural, you know, a natural like, I don't know what the a, a, a smoothness, you know, I don't know, it was just like he perfectly read read the ball off the bat and made it look so easy. And,
0: and he has consistently showed up as one of the best outfielders in baseball. I do remember at the time they traded for him from Arizona, and I know that trade has been panned forever. Uh, I, I was, it wasn't even about Swanson and Blair for me. I have said it at the time; I would have preferred CRT to Shelby Miller. Because I think he was an underrated outfielder, and he's basically a league average hitter, too. To the point where I wonder, uh, since Freddie Freeman's probably not going to be available for the All-Star game, if the Braves get another representative, aside from Freeman, will it be Inciarte over Kemp? Kemp is crushing the ball, but he's not really much of an outfielder. Inciarte is value on both sides of the ball. I don't know. Probably not, but it's an interesting question to think about.
1: We'll find out soon enough you should all go out and vote for the all-star game while we wait while we wait for this to be decided. Vote
0: Tommy Fam. don't actually do that uh, That's our show for this week. This is the MLB.com Stackcast podcast thanks for listening I'm Mike Petriello. it's Matt Myers. We will catch you next week.